You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, presenting interviews with famous, fascinating, influential personalities from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. And after a while, I forgot who I was talking to, like the 35th president of the United States. It felt like I was talking to my dad about baseball. You know, Mookie Wilson and Dykstra, you can't platoon those two. Uh, you gotta have them take their swings. Sports broadcaster Roy Firestone. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. While he was still in his teens in the 1960s, Roy Firestone got an up-close look at Major League Baseball by being a bat boy for the Baltimore Orioles during spring training in Florida. Now, rather than pursue a career as a bat boy, Roy Firestone turned to broadcasting, first on television in his native Miami, later L.A., and ultimately in 1980, moving to ESPN, where he hosted the popular show called Up Close, for 14 years, in fact. Now, in 1993, he wrote a book called Up Close and In Your Face, and that's when I met him. So here now, from 1993, Roy Firestone. I wanted to chronicle what 13 years has been like on a roller coaster and in a three-ring circus and in a Ferris wheel and in a horror house at the same time all at once. Uh, it's been an amusement park, if you will, to continue the, the parody, I guess, there. Uh, I've had an incredible experience in 13 years. I've had the world's greatest job. It's a, the dream job for any sports fan, certainly. But beyond sports, I've also met some of the greats of entertainment, too, and shared the stage, among other things, with uh, Loretta Lynn and Frank Sinatra in my own performing life, which perhaps we'll get into later. But it's, it's been an incredible ride. And I wanted to chronicle that for my kids. And I also wanted to tell everybody uh, some things that my opinions about the world of sports and beyond. Do you ever feel like you have a kind of a split personality? You're not sure whether you want to be a performer, you want to be an interviewer, you want to be a bat boy. I mean, which you know, who who is the real Roy? I've Firestone? had a real Walter Mitty life. I really have. I, I, you know, the truth is, Bill, I've I've had the kind of life that I really chose to to have, and that is to not be delineated into one area or another. People always say to me, "Well, would you rather do stand-up comedy or, you know, um, you know, perform in Vegas as I have, or would you continue to do the talk show?" I don't know that I've been asked to make a choice. No, Very few times in life people say you better make this choice or not. Life should be led open-ended, I think. And at the end, I want to say I had a large canvas and an equally large uh, palette. And uh, I got a chance to create. Now, if I was lousy in any one thing or the other, uh, surely I would be forced to make a choice at one point or other because somebody would say, you're fired, you know. And by the way, that's also okay with me, too. I, I, I don't know. I don't know what, what it is I end up want to do, ending, wanting to do when I grow up. <laughs> but I'll let you know when I do, if I do. But also, it'd be a different thing if you hadn't come at all these things almost simultaneously. Yeah, it's, it's not yeah. like Greg Gumbel suddenly went on the road with a comedy act. Well, I've been doing stand-up comedy since I'm 15 years old, and I have a variety show that I take around the country with synthesizers and uh, gi- giant video screens, audiovisual, and I do some 35 impressions, and I do musical parodies of so- uh, songs to the sports world. It's sort of like a... a a Mark Russell, if you will, for those who know, satirist uh, of Washington. This is more my look at the the weird world of sports and entertainment, too. A lot of impressions of both sports figures and entertainment figures. Um, so I've done that since the time I've more or less been 15. Uh, I started uh, opening at the Orlando Disney World at 15, first day, with Mel Torme. And so uh, I've had some great experiences, but... Um, 
make no mistake, there are lines drawn between what I do when I get behind the microphone uh, with my guests and what I do when I get on a stage by myself. I have more liberties when I'm on a stage. Did you develop uh, consciously a particular interviewing style, or is that you? Exactly. I think people always ask me, well, you're not really a very confrontational interviewer. Well, I'm not a very confrontational person. I'm not a particularly cynical person. I'm a fairly upbeat person. and uh, I'm skeptical in the areas that I think are important in sport, um, but I choose not to place too much judgment on a person before um, you know, they, they lay it out there for me on the show. Um, I, I have a device. I have a style in interviewing, and that is I like to allow the guests to have as much dignity as they possibly can. I also like to apply compassion whenever is possible. Um, but if I need to get into the heart of a controversy, I will, but I'll do it in this way. I'll use other people's writings and others, other people's clips and sound bites. Now, some may call that eluding it directly. If so, so be it. But it allows me to be more objective as a third party, as an interviewer, and it gives a comfort zone between me and them. Um, if that's a device, if that's eluding, whatever you want to call it, that's my style. I'm not somebody who looks to assail anybody on my show. Probably somebody once said I'm closer to Mike Douglas than Mike Wallace as an interviewer. <laughs> but that's fine with me because for 13 years and 3,500 shows, it's, it's worked best for me. So you all, you've also got a challenge that, that I've never had to face because when I meet authors on tour, they want to come to the studio to be interviewed. They mm -hmm. are anxious to sit down and talk. And that's not always the case with the people you're, you're it's interviewing. It's rarely the case, Bill. Most athletes have had enough. By the time they come to a town, they would like to maybe play golf with Esquinas or something out in California somewhere. And uh, no, uh, most most people when they're when they play through playing sports, they feel that that's their obligation, and mostly it is. But there are other people who feel, and thank God for them that they have a responsibility to the public to let the public know a little bit more about who they are because the public is, after all, paying their, their bills. And those are the people we applaud because uh, we do not pay our guests and never have. And we're asking many of them to get into limousines, sometimes at 7 in the morning, from uh, you know a, an hour and a half, say, drive away into our Hollywood studios and talk to us. And one day, Jose Conseco, who, by the way, is not the most uh, accessible interview I've ever met in my life, agreed to do an interview... And we picked them up a little bit later in the day, like 10 o'clock. But that was the day of the L.A. floods. And there was a three-and-a-half or four-hour drive, four hours in the, in the driving rain. And I expected to have the, the dragon man, you know, at, at the studio by the time he got there. But he couldn't have been nicer. It was also, though, we should point out as a postscript to the story, he ran up a $600 phone bill, but uh, <laughs> that's quite all right, Jose. You came into the studio for us, and you made the sacrifice, so it's your... It's your call, so to speak. He, he must have obviously heard from Wilt Chamberlain that your guests must show up on time. <laughs> That's right. I, uh, I, I, that brings us to light a story. I had Wilt Chamberlain on the show once, and they said, how do you remember Bill Walton on the court? And what Wilt wanted to say was that Wilt Chamberlain, that Bill Walton, I should say, Bill Walton had a special aura all to himself. But when Wilt got on the air, he said, Bill Walton had a special aroma all to himself. And so that, that lost a little something in the translation. One of the most unbelievable people I've ever been around. I mean, just thrilling to watch and fun to be around. And a guy who's got a real good sense of, about, a sense of humor about himself, which I can't say about all the athletes I've been around. These guys are under incredible scrutiny. 
uh, incredible expectation day to day. If you sell shoes for a living, you don't know basically what kind of job you... Oh, I sold three pairs of stride right. Very nice. But if you're a ball player, you know to the minute, to the millisecond, to the, uh, to the micro uh, statistic exactly what you're doing every day. Now, you're paid tremendously in, in, in the same proportion. But it must be really weird to live your life every single day where everybody who, who really cares knows exactly how you're doing on your job and late inning pressure situations and all kinds of oh, yeah, where the future mega of statistics. You, where your, not only your future, but the future of your team may depend on one pitch, which is going to come your way in just any second now, mm-hmm. and you have to make that split-second decision, will I hit it, will I swing at it, and if I make contact, will it go where I hope it will so that we can win the... What kind of pressure? And with, with tens of millions of people watching. Tack on the fact that you got kids who go going to grade school, probably, and <laughs> their friends go, your dad stinks! You know, <laughs> Not a whole lot of kids have to adore that ignominy of, of, of their, their friends telling, knowing, hey, he's only hitting 235 under pressure situations. My dad's in his rotisserie league. He's had to trade him twice, you know. That's kind of a heavy, heavy uh, price to bear when you're seven years old, you know. So there's a lot of, a lot of burdens on these guys' shoulders. In a phrase, I guess I try to lighten up on them a little bit. Um, I, although I've confronted, uh, you know, w- when I've had to, in, in my own way, uh, every major issue. This book, the Up Close book, is, is, is a reflection of a lot of things. There's a lot of humor in this book. There's a lot of bizarre stories, which I, perhaps we'll get to in a few moments. But... There's also some statements that I wanted to make about sport, about uh, what's happened to sport, what's happened to the athlete, what's happened to the fan, uh, what sport does and doesn't do for us as a society without getting too lofty about all of it. And uh, I I wanted to also examine two things. I wanted to examine the relationship that athletes have with their families, fathers and sons mostly. And uh, I also wanted at the end to talk about what the real what the real test of courage is all about and beyond succeeding and winning playoff games there's real courage that's been shown on our show and real passion and i like the athlete i have to like the athlete i couldn't doing what i do not like the athlete after 13 years after this short break the former president who impressed roy firestone with his encyclopedic knowledge Now back to my 1993 interview with Roy Firestone. Do you have a favorite bizarre story? There's lots of them. Well, one of my favorites is the time we have Dr. J booked for the show. And we, uh, we booked Dr. J, and Dr. J said, um, how about bringing my agent on with me? Now, usually I don't like to do that, because, but this time he had a good angle. He said, let's talk about the relationship between an agent and a superstar. And I said, great, fine. So we pick up Dr. J. We send limousines for all our guests because we want to make sure they show up. And he, we pick him up, and he's fine. He's in the car. And we had to go to another hotel for the agent, whose name is Erwin Wiener. The reason being, you'll find out in a second. So we go to another hotel, uh, you know, whatever hotel that was. And it's the wrong hotel. The limo driver holds up a sign for Mr. Wiener. They're having a fabric convention at this particular hotel. And there's a whole lot of people milling around in the lobby. And as you know, limo driver's holding up those signs. And Mr. Wiener, Mr. Saul Wiener, sees the sign. And he says, I'm Salvina. And the limousine guy says, you're Mr. Wiener here for the show? He doesn't know what the guy's name is. <laughs> he goes, sure. He thinks he's talking about the fabric, <laughs> the fabric show. So he says, sure. He says, I got a limousine treatment? Not bad. Just to get to the convention? He says, that's right. Get in the car. He drives in the car. Now, the limo's driver's driving for 15, 20 minutes. Now, Mr. Wiener's getting a little 
antsy because he figures it's only a 10-minute drive to the convention center. He says, you sure we're going to the show? He goes, that's what we're here for. He says, it's a longer ride than I thought. He goes, let me ask you a question, Mr. Weiner. What's Dr. J really like? So Saul Weiner, who has no idea what he's talking about, says, I'm sure he's a wonderful guy. You know? And what is he supposed to say, right? He says, but what's it like? What do, you, what do you think it's like every day to be Dr. J? And he's asking all these Dr. J questions. And the guy says, well, I'm such a fan, I can't even tell you. If I have... So the P.S. to the story, the door opens up, he gets to the studio, and there's this Saul Wiener guy looking around like, what am I doing here? And sure enough, Dr. J walks out, and he says, Dr. J, we just were talking about you in the car! This actually happened. We never found Erwin Wiener, by the way. Saul Wiener had left the show with, the, with an autographed basketball. That was, that was pretty bizarre. <laughs> Another bizarre one was when we had, uh, oh, I interviewed President Nixon. I interviewed President Nixon several times, but... Uh, First time was when we had him. The uh, the Angels had just clinched the division title in '79, and I'm in the locker room, and Nixon's wearing his blue suit, and he's a big baseball fan, but he's he's still very presidential, you know, and kind of <laughs> stiff, you know. He's in the clubhouse trying to slap the backs of all the stars, and all of a sudden, they it erupts into a champagne celebration as playoff uh, teams are have a want to do. And uh, suddenly Nixon finds himself engulfed in a champagne shower, right? And they're pouring champagne all over his hair and rubbing it into his scalp. And all the Secret Service guys are talking in the walkie-talkie. Gee, Ed, this isn't in the manual. What do we say? What do we do? Is this a threat? What do we do? It's not. What do we do? It's not. You know, so Nixon doesn't know what to. But Nixon, to his credit, feels like he's one of the guys now. So he's going to loosen up. (laughs) You know, uh, and he's got champagne pouring down his face, and he goes, ah, champagne shampoo. <laughs> and then we fast forward like, you know, seven, eight years later, I'm doing an interview with Nixon about the 86 World Series, and I couldn't believe how knowledgeable he was about baseball. We're sitting across from each other, and after a while, I forgot who I was talking to, like the 35th president of the United States. I f- it felt like I was talking to my dad about baseball. You know, Mookie Wilson and Dykstra. You can't platoon those two. Uh, you got to have them take their swings. And you want to make sure that Clemens throws that high, hard fastball, jamming those hitters, especially at Fenway on the turf. And he's giving me all these statistics. I felt like I was talking to Johnny Pesky or something. <laughs> but that the payoff to this whole story is I have to say, and as I say it in the book, in 1972, I was this ardent and anti-Nixon guy, as you could find. I was a pretty anti-Nixon. Well, I'm getting along great with this guy, and I'm liking him. And I'm spending a lot, you know, all afternoon with Nixon. And at the end of the afternoon, I said, can I level with you? Sure, go ahead, Roy. I said, I despised you 20 years ago, and I like you now. He says, well, time heals all wounds. And I said, well, and if the truth be known, I mean, in the 72 convention, I mean, your limousine was three blocks away, but I threw a rock at your limousine. By the way, I'm not (laughs) advocating doing that, but he goes, well, you're pardoned. (laughs) (laughs) I thought that was a wonderful line, you know. It just, but that was bizarre too. I mean, we we've had a lot of. I asked Pete Rose one time, how would have life been different, Pete Rose, if you were born a woman? And he said, I think I would have been a hell of an ugly woman. You know? <laughs> so that's that's pretty true. Um, we a, Abe Lemons did our show, and he was the coach at Texas, and we were talking about baiting the referee. People know that if coaches get one technical one technical foul, they're one technical foul away from being tossed from the game. You get two technical fouls, you're out. So Abe Lemons gets a technical foul, and he gets calls the referee over. He goes, hey, Raph, come over here for a second. He tells the story. 
Ralph, if I can, I can I get another technical foul for something I'm just thinking? So the referee says, "No, Abe." He goes, "Well, I'm thinking you're an sob. You know, this is the way these guys think. They, any way they get the dialogue going, uh, bizarre, funny, and and poignant." We had uh, Charles Barkley reunited with his father, who he'd been estranged with from since he was three years old. Uh, we had Sugar Ray Leonard talking about infidelity. I, 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 as I said before, I'm not a tabloid-esque type of. Uh, a reporter or interviewer, but there's been some extremely moving moments. Uh, one of the most touching moments I remember is Wes Unseld, uh, the coach of the Bullets, said that the best thing he ever learned in life from his father was how to love his mother. And in other words, saying effectively that if you love your wife or and your kids see that, they're being taught the most important lesson in life is love. And his father put it very simply, he says, the, the best thing you can ever do is love your wife. And, and have your children see that. And he said it simply, the best thing my father ever did was love my mother. And I think that it says a very basic human uh, truth, and that is love is the ultimate lesson that you teach your children. And if they get that basic lesson down, it's passed on for generations, generations. Wonderful stories, too. Magic Johnson talking about his father who worked two shifts, one at the GM plant in Lansing, Michigan, and the other working a trash trash detail, worked 18 hours a day, seven days a week, raising 10 kids. And one day, a little magic, a little Irvin, at that time, of course, went into the, um, with, the, with the trash detail with his father. He says, Dad, you don't have any time for yourself. And his father said, but you don't understand. It's not about that. It's not about any of that. It's all about you. It's all about you and your nine brothers and sisters. And I thought the name of that chapter should be It's All About You, because what it really comes down to is if the parents, and so fragmented now in society, families and, uh, you know, family households are so fragmented, parents aren't together. But if whomever is guiding a family can remember it's all about the kids, all about the children, we're going to be a lot better off. There's a lot of stories like that. And there's a lot of qualities to this book that I'm proud of because it, it reflects a lot of the human heart, which ultimately is what is attractive to me. I have many, many things left to ask you. I could listen to your stories for hours, but I'm running out of time already. Is there anything else that you wanted to add or any question you thought I should ask that I didn't? Well, I, I think, I think the, the thing that I'd like to say is the issue of role model versus non-role model. The Charles Barkley issue is something that I, I – Charles Barkley, who is a ter- delightful person and, and one of the best people I've known in sports, even though I don't always agree with him, has a, an ad out where he says, I'm not a role model. Uh, your parents should be a role model. He's absolutely right. And he's also absolutely wrong at the same time. He's right in principle because our society shouldn't be based on whether a guy who slam dunks a basketball can raise your kids. But the reality is that families being broken up as they have, uh, most of the children in this country come to look at athletes, superstars, as secondary role models. They are looking at these athletes as people to help give them a, a, a light, a guide, an idea uh, as to how to run their lives. Whether he likes it or not, whether he had, uh, can see it or not, it is a fact. I know because I get the mail. And uh, I think that athletes have a responsibility, an obligation indeed, to not only their communities and their sports, but to understand that children are listening, are watching, and uh, they should mind their P's and Q's. The other point I want to make, too, is that I think there's a tendency for us to look at sports and see two, three, four hundred black athletes who happen to be millionaires and say, wow, what a great country we're living in and what a great thing for sports. It is great, greater for the minority athlete financially. 
but the whole of America is not reflected with sport. We have a lot of problems in this country, and there are more people on the poverty line, black and white, than there, than there were 20 years ago, and people don't know that. So I think sometimes sports allows us to feel good in ways that maybe we should be still a little bit more aware in areas of... Uh, are, uh, you know, it allows us to lose some of the guilt that we might associate because we see a lot of black athletes running around on the basketball court. We've got a lot of work to do. And by the way, athletes themselves always owe us a responsibility to be a little bit more aware on what goes on in inner cities and communities, too. They're very involved, lots of them, but they need to be more involved, I think. Roy Firestone will be 68 in December, and he's still on television on a show called Good Day L.A., And you can find easy Amazon links to Roy Firestone's book at our website, HeardEverything.com. And while you're at HeardEverything.com, be sure and listen to my interview with Dick Vitale. You know, I've done fairly well in life, Bill, thinking for a guy that has no talent, has no looks, has nothing going for him. Yet it shows in America. If a Dick Vitale can make it, anyone can. And my conversation with Joe Garagiola. Yankee Stadium shadows. He looked at me when he was having problems out there, and he said, I said, yo, those shadows are tough. He said, well, it gets late early out there. (laughs) That's Yogi. And, of course, we post new episodes here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find us on all major podcast platforms. And thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, the woman who used to be governor of Michigan and is now the nation's energy secretary, my 2011 conversation with Jennifer Granholm. I cut taxes 99 times in my first term, and those prescriptions didn't work. We will never win a race to the bottom. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Bill Thompson.